0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clear Note Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Well, thank you very much, Tim. Um, yeah, good memories go back over the years of uh, friendships and memories together. And... Um, I was thinking about uh, something that his father, Joe Bailey, said. He talked about how uh, Mary Lou, his wife, was, I think he said, a wife of 42 winters. I think that's the phrase that he used. Well, Barbara is my wife of 46 winters and uh, gets sweeter all the time. And so I, I, I meant, when I said 46, I meant 56. <laughs> she also writes my sermons for me so (laughs) there you go boy yeah and uh, so and thank you for the warm reception of my wife she came back uh, tired and rejoicing in God's goodness and getting to meet a lot of you women here and uh, being ministered to you her being ministered to by you so thank you very much You want to keep your Bibles open or the text before you, which is 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. And uh, as you heard in that long reading of Scripture, boasting by the Apostle Paul was a painful awkwardness to him. So in the 11th chapter, when we began about verse 16, he talked about, playing a fool, being a fool. He didn't want to boast. When he went to talk about it, he felt like he was crazy mad saying it. So he didn't like to boast. But here in 2 Corinthians, and I'm talking about the 12th chapter, when Paul's opponents, the super apostles, were boasting of their ethnic degrees, their pedigrees, all the kinds of things that would make them stand tall in Hebrew culture, he reluctantly responded by reciting his own transcending degrees, his pedigrees, which he quickly turned into an extended boast in his weakness. That was in the 11th chapter where he reticently boasted in his weaknesses. And when you get to the 12th chapter, which is the verse we have right in front of us here, Paul uh, is called to counter his opponent's boasts by boasting in his own surpassing experiences. And so what you get is you get this, I don't want to do it, reticence in saying this. So in that opening verse... You, you could read it with a kind of resignation, like, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Though he's doubtful about boasting, doesn't like to boast, doesn't, not sure what's going to accomplish, he fully understands the default of not boasting, and so he will again play the fool. He'll feel like a fool in boasting, which he doesn't like to do. But very significantly, he doesn't waste any time talking about all the other things he could boast in, his pedigrees and so on. He goes straight to his vision and revelation of the risen Lord. That's what you have in the following verses. But not unsurprisingly, this is the Apostle Paul, after he boasts in these kinds of things and he gets all done with it, he makes an even greater boast in his weakness. That's where he really feels it. Now, Paul opens with a bare-bones description of his being caught up uh, into the third heaven into paradise And you see it in verses 2 and 3 of the text. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. Now, you'll see his uh, shyness about doing this because he refers to himself in the third person. I know a man, there is a man. But there is no doubt about that he's talking about himself when he talks about this man because when you get to verse 7, he identifies himself as that man as he starts to speak about himself. Now, here it is. The very fact that 14 years before, he says, I know a man who 14 years ago was 14 years earlier would be about AD 42 when Paul was in Tarsus preparing for his first missionary journey. It's before he really got going on this. He had this vision. But in those 14 years and all those travels and everything else, he had never told anyone about the vision of being caught up into the third heaven. You know, it must have been important to him, and I think you'll see for his preparation for his missionary work, but he never told anyone. He believed that it's subjective individualized nature wouldn't profit anyone because if he did believe that, he would have because he talked about his conversion on the road to Damascus when he was met by the Lion of the tribe of Judah at the uh, Damascus off-ramp and uh, was radically regenerated. He told that over and over again. But here it is. Paul's experience of rapture to the third heaven was so ecstatic that he didn't know if he'd been there in the body or out of the body. Didn't know if he'd been caught up like Enoch. He didn't know about that. He didn't know what it was. All he knew, it was so awesome, is that he'd been there. Now, biblical view of the universe, or you want to call it biblical cosmology, views the heavens as threefold. Uh, The first heaven is the atmosphere around it. Second heaven is the galaxies and stars, the Milky Way and all of that. And the third heaven is the abode of God. So he says, I've been to God's house, so to speak. But he also says with a parallel designation that It is paradise. Now, the word paradise, very interesting, only occurs three times in the Bible, right here, where he says he's been called third paradise. It occurs in Luke, the 23rd chapter, verse 43, where he says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the other place. And the third place is Revelation 2.7, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now here's the thing, in salvation history, paradise is always the presence of Jesus. So he says, I've been caught up into the third heaven. And then he says, I've been caught up into the paradise sect- sector, Which is the very presence of Christ. That's the height of his experience. And there he saw Jesus. He saw the redeemed at home with the Lord, waiting for the crowning consummation, the award of their glorious resurrection bodies at the return of Christ. That's what he saw. Am I breathing into this mic too much? Let me me move it out a little bit. You don't need to hear me breathe, you need to hear me preach. Okay. That is what he saw. Can you imagine if you could see what was reflected in his eyeballs? Jesus, the redeemed host, all the colors of heaven, the angelic hosts, he saw all of that. But listen, There's what he heard. Because in verse 4 it says, Paul heard things that cannot be told which men may not utter. What he heard wasn't beyond utterance because they were intelligible to him. He understood what was being said. He understood every word, but he was forbidden to speak about it. So he never told anyone about it. They were private He understood every word. Now, you step back to this and you say, what an awesome transcendent experience. No human in salvation history had anything to compare with it. Old Testament and New Testament. No one. Well, why was it given to Paul? And why... If he wasn't going to share it with anyone? That's a good question. Well, John Calvin supplied the answer in his opening line. He says it and then explains it. He said it was for the sake of Paul himself. And then Calvin said, for because one who had such arduous difficulties awaiting him, enough to break a thousand hearts required to be strengthened by special means that he might not give way, but might persevere undaunted. In other words, he was given this epic experience because of his epic life of suffering. Now, we read about it in the 11th chapter, verses 16 and following. It's, it, it really kind of trumps reality that we can think of because here it is. There have been people that died a more excruciating death than Paul. We've read some of the martyrs that in Iraq. We know that they died an awful, excruciating death. But here it is, over his whole life. I don't think there's anyone in the history of the church that had suffering equal to the Apostle Paul. You read about all those dangers and beatings and so on. Think about this. When Paul went into a city he was committed to taking the gospel to the Jews first. When he received 40 stripes which he did five times at this point in his life that was a Jewish punishment administered by the synagogue. Which means that when he went into a city and he went to the Jews first, he got beat to within an inch of his life, 40 stripes minus one, because they didn't want to kill him. They just wanted to push him to the edge of existence. So he heals up, he ministers to Gentiles and so on. He goes to the next city, and guess who he goes to first? The Jews! Five times! You'd think maybe after the second time, you go, I think I'll do just do Gentiles in uh, Corinth and do you know? This is in the this this is written in the 50s. He doesn't die till the mid-sixties in Iranian persecution, so I don't know how many more times he was beaten. That's just Paul. What a, he is the hero of world history. This is amazing. An epic Experience because of his epic life and sufferings. That's why, to sustain an epic heart on the journey. Now, I'd say most people that had been granted an ecstasy like this wouldn't be able to contain themselves. I mean, getting back from the third heaven, from the paradise of God, seeing all those things, get back, you're gonna, you want to tell people about it, right? I mean, today... You'd write a bestseller. You know, My Journey to Heaven and Back, a personal account. You'd sell millions of copies. You could start a whole denomination on it, you could start a university, Rapture University. But what is certain is that Paul would have taken this to his grave had not he been commanded by the Holy Spirit to share it in this particular situation. He wouldn't have told anyone. And now when he goes on to boast, it is so modest and restrained as he continues on in that kind of self-deprecating third person. Verses 5 and 6. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool by speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me and hears in me." That no one will think more of me than he sees in me and that he hears in me. Completely justified completely justified in sharing that, but he doesn't do that because he doesn't want anyone to set store by more than what they see and what they hear him say. Just evaluate me by my actions and standards, not my claim to ecstatic experiences. And I I think what he does then, everybody ought to hear this, he gives us essential wisdom for navigating the currents of modern day Christianity. We're not to follow People who claim these ecstatic experiences. It is their conduct and their speech. Now, up to this point in the text, he's been uh, kind of not vague, but hard to see through, opaque. But now he switches to the first person and he becomes crystal clear. And what he becomes crystal clear about as he switches to the first person is that the revelation to him had been so awesome and exalting that he needed a thorn. Verse 7. So to keep me from being too elated, puffed up, by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being too elated. Now, what you want to note, he didn't, he didn't have that thorn till he'd had the vision. He had the vision, and then he got the thorn because he would have become impossible without the thorn. Now, I that puts that vision and that experience so off the charts. The Apostle Paul become. Conceited, puffed up, I mean, it's hard for me to think of. But That's what it says. Well, the thorn. There's been all kinds of conjecture about the thorn. Some said it's been the Judaizers, the, the super apostles, as opposition. And I can certainly say pastorally that thorn is a nice metaphor for opposition. Uh, some have thought it was his... Uh, Failing eyesight because he wrote large letters at the end of, of Galatians, but I think that was just because he was making an emphasis and doing it by hand himself. And so the speculations are run, run wild as to what the thorn is from earaches to headaches to malaria to gallstones to gout to rheumatism to sciatica, gastritis, leprosy, lice, deafness, dental disease, neurasthenia. Every one of those things have been named. We just don't know what it was. Now, I, I, I ran off this list one time with pastors and wives at a conference, and I had a, a pastor's wife come up to me and said, I know I know what his thorn was. It was his wife. <laughs> well, she said it. I didn't. And then I have to say, I don't think Paul had a wife anyway, so it's funny. But we don't know what it was. And I think one of the reasons we don't know what it was is so we could supply our own thorn The thing that we would plead to God to take away. I think the anonymity is a good thing. But the truth that we need to know about the thorn is that while the thorn was Satan's work, it was God who allowed it. God allowed this awful thorn that Paul wanted to be delivered because divine knowledge knew that he had to have that thorn. His thorn, this loathsome whatever it was, this thing he wanted, is one of the reasons that super apostles and his critics criticized him. They would say God isn't with him because he's got this affliction. I mean, they said God isn't with him because he's not rich. God isn't with him because he's not handsome. God isn't with him because he's not eloquent. I mean, they had all kinds of litany, but this was one of the things. And Paul turned it on his head, and he said the very thing the critics loathed in him, he saw that and said that God wasn't with him it was actually proof. The thorn was proof. What a stunning rebuke to the super apostles who worshiped health and well-being and viewed affliction and weakness as a sign of God's absence. What a rebuke. may we take it to heart and understand this with our weaknesses and our thorns. Now, I would never suggest that he enjoyed the thorn. You know, Lord, afflict me, I like it. Nothing like that. In fact, he pled three times to have that thorn taken away. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, it should leave me. What you want to notice, you, you wouldn't maybe get it right off, the three times are three times at the same time, not three separate times. And he consciously was thinking about his own personal Gethsemane, just as Christ pled to have the cup of the cross taken from him, not to drink it, and the father said yes. Here he pleads with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, the thorn stays with you. And so we have to really take it to heart, and this is maybe a hard cup to swallow, so to speak. When he says no to removing a thorn, It comes from his compassionate goodness and love. Paralleled and exemplified by what he did for the Apostle Paul himself. That God has our good in mind. Now the no that he gets is the high point of the whole letter from which everything makes sense and that is in verse nine, the first part, but he said to me, Who's that? Who said it? Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is the summit of the whole letter of 2 Corinthians. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is where everything begins to make sense. Because the grand theme of 2 Corinthians is God's power manifested through human weakness. Authentic ministry of the new covenant, the preachers and teachers of the new covenant, is grounded in weakness that is the theme take it to heart now I'm going to do something really quick with you but I'd like you to take your Bibles should you have them and take them in hand and turn to the opening chapter and I'm going to give you just a brief run-through of this whole God's power in human weakness motif it's in there so you open to the first chapter and in verse eight You'll see it, the God's strength in our weakness, where he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, in other words, in weakness, that we despaired of life. Indeed, we'd receive, we had received the sentence of death. You can't be any more weak than that, but... That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Resurrection power. So he has this awful experience of weakness, so he will experience God's power. He says it right in the first chapter. Then if you go across the page to the second chapter, verses 14 and 16, he says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. Let me just say this quickly. He's talking about a Roman triumph where the Roman general and his legions have conquered and subjugated a people. And they come back into Rome, and he's riding in a chariot drawn by either four immense horses or elephants, pachyderms. The general's face is painted purple for God, uh, for Jupiter, the god of war. Behind him, he has great carts with the beaks of ships and gold and silver. And behind him, the the prisoners that are being led to death at least their leaders are. Paul isn't saying, I'm riding in the chariot with the general. I'm riding to death. And the gospel is being wafted out to people. God's gospel and strength comes out of my abject weakness, he says. You look down a little later in chapter 3, and you'll see The word sufficiency, he says such, this is chapter three, verse four, and such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, not that we are powerful in ourselves to claim anything coming from us, but our sufficiency, our strength is from God who has made us sufficient, his strength to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We have no sufficiency in ourselves. It comes from God. And then perhaps the most dramatic statement of this outside of the great pinnacle that we just looked at is in chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's a metaphor for human weakness. To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then he does the most stunning thing. He gives you four paradoxes that go from weakness to strength. We're afflicted. That's weakness in every way. But not crushed. That's strength. Perplexed. Weakness. But not driven to spare. Strength. Persecuted. Weakness. But not forsaken. Power. Struck down. Weakness. But not destroyed. Uh, Tim was raised in the same town, and he would know of this man, Merle Tenney, who taught Greek for years, and he gave us a paraphrase which actually captures the Greek almost perfectly. He said, squeezed but not squashed, bewildered but not befuddled, pursued but not abandoned, knocked down but not knocked out from weakness to strength, weakness to strength, weakness to strength. And it goes on and talks about how Jesus did it. Now, I'll just say in the sixth chapter, I won't take time there, but he talks about it in verses 8 and following and 9 and following, the same paradoxes. Then we come over to chapter 11, and we had that long litany of his awful sufferings, where at the end of it in chapter 11... In verse 30, he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then he talks about an ignominious escape from a city where he was let down in a greasy fish basket that no Greeks would ever brag about. He says, I'll I'll boast about that. This is our Paul who comes to the very summit at Jesus who says, but my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. He says it to everyone here My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then, the other half of verse 9 is Paul speaking. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I want you to to hear this. So the power of Christ may rest upon me. Because this is kind of like the Holy of Holies of application here. It's so beautiful. Rest upon me is the vocabulary of the tabernacle. From the time when God pitched his tent with his people in Exodus 40, 34. It's the same vocabulary that uh, John used in one fourteen of talking about Jesus' tabernacling among us. That, that word rest is tabernacling. You really want to kind of get it, he pitches his tent with us in our weakness. He camps with us in our weakness. Now you can either just hear that or accept it totally with your heart. This is not something to just pass over. He camps with us in our weakness. Do we believe it? It's the truth of God's word. This is so countercultural, isn't it? I mean, even within the church today, we imagine that God's power is with those great ones that jet from city to city, to big stadiums where they're announced. May I present that humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Drum roll, spotlights go on, the echo goes on in the mic. Let's make up a name. John Jones, faithful servant of Jesus, and everyone applauds. That's not where God resides. He resides with the suffering shut in, the anonymous, the anonymous pastor, the anonymous missionary, godly, quiet servants in the home and in the marketplace. That's true. And then listen to Paul's attitude and his disposition in result of that, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when, here's the paradox, when I am weak, then I'm strong. When I am weak, then I'm strong. When I am weak I am strong the paradox of power God does not need our perceived strengths if that's what we pin on we want we like to give our strengths to God but our weaknesses no he wants our weaknesses our sufferings our inadequacies our insecurities, our disabilities, our failures, our fears. My wife knows that uh, I have had this calligraphied and uh, had it in my study on display a good portion of the years, and it is from Oswald Chambers, and here's what it says. God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen to use nobodies because their unusual dependence upon him made possible the unique display of of his power and grace. He chose to use somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. He doesn't need our strengths. He needs to give our weaknesses to him and depend upon him. I uh, one time heard Vance Havner preach. I ask any hand, you gotta be old if you ever heard of Vance Havner. He was an old uh, Southern Baptist preacher. Yeah, you all got gray hair that know about him. And uh, a little man, a great preacher, an evangelist That's what he'd spent his life doing, as a traveling evangelist before he settled down and pastored. And he talks in his uh, book, uh, Three Score and Ten, about becoming an evangelist as a young man. And here's what he says, Here I was, about to begin a full-time traveling ministry, which meant sleeping in a different bed every week, changing food and climate, always getting adjusted and never getting adjusted, and utterly exhausted before I started. That would be it. Any advisor would have called it sheerest folly. I felt more like quitting instead of undertaking a most demanding work that many strong men have tried but unable to continue. And he starts to get down to it. If ever there was a chance to prove that God's strength is made perfect in weakness and that when we are weak, we are strong, this was it. And then the Then the astonishing, uh, humorous, great Vance Havner. The Lord had the strength, I had the weakness, so we teamed up and we were an unbeatable combination. How beautiful, how utterly beautiful. God said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, I will glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He wants to pitch his tent with us. Christ in us. And I'll just say to everyone here, there's, there's, there's believers that have been believers as long as I've been a believer. There are people that are just in the door. I mean, just in the door. The truth remains the same. We never come to Christ in our power, we come in our weakness, our humility, a consciousness of our sinfulness, a consciousness of our need to him, uh, uh, of poverty in spirit. Lord, I need you, I need you, Lord, I need you. And he meets us, wherever we are. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice him to his blood, or come to the table. The table is where we come with our weakness and our need, to him, and he meets it. Blessed be his name. Amen.